This is Mike Grell, and you're listening to Warlord Worlds. Thank you for listening to Warlord Worlds, a fan podcast devoted to the comic creations of writer and artist Mike Grell, including the Warlord John Sable and Green Arrow. I'm Ruth. And I'm Darren. And this is a fan podcast. We're not affiliated with Mike Grell, and the opinions expressed are just ours. We do this podcast simply because we enjoy reading and talking about the comics of Mike Grell. The number of issues covered in each episode varies based on story arcs. Today, we're talking about The Warlord, number 42 to 43, and John Sable Freelance, number 31 to 32, along with a four-part story from Green Arrow, issues 35 through 38. If you enjoy the podcast, please check out MikeGrell.com. That's his official site, where you'll find all of the latest news. Of course, the world has changed this year, and there are few conventions going on right now, but you can still get a great Mike Grell commission by contacting Scott Kress at CatskillComics.com. Just reach out to him, and he can arrange that with Mike. Scott is a terrific gentleman, and we've really enjoyed getting to know him over the years. Since our last episode, Mike Grell and Mark Ryan had a very successful Kickstarter for The Pilgrim. Jeff Messer, along with Mike and Mark and Stephen B. Scott, have been keeping fans updated on the progress of the book. It'll be very exciting to see that full story in print, and we'll share any news we hear on our social media accounts along the way. It's all very exciting, so be sure to follow The Pilgrim on Facebook as well as Masterstroke Studios' Mike Grell Universe page, and you can follow Mike on Twitter at Grell Official. And of course, the Mike Grell page on Facebook is a wonderful way to stay current on Mike Grell's projects. Longtime fans Gus Sabalios and Jeff Messer do a great job with that site. We enjoy giving shout-outs to our friends and sharing listener feedback, so please feel free to write to us anytime and join in on the conversations. We'd love to hear your thoughts about any of Mike Grell's titles. We'll provide our email address and other ways to reach us at the end of the episode. Warlord Worlds is part of the Rad Adventure Podcast Network. If you enjoy the show, please consider checking out our other podcasts that are available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and YouTube. Xenozoic Xenophiles covers the post-apocalyptic adventure series Xenozoic Tales, featuring Cadillacs and Dinosaurs by writer and artist Mark Schultz. And Trekker Talk is devoted to the adventures of 23rd century bounty hunter Mercy St. Clair from the pages of the sci-fi comic Trekker by writer and artist Ron Randall. Mike Grell, Mark Schultz, and Ron Randall are our favorite comic creators. Their stories are always filled with adventure and interesting characters, and their art is excellent. We hope you'll try out our other shows, and we'll be sure to include links to those podcasts in our show notes. But now it's time to talk about some great Mike Grell comics right after this promo for another podcast you might enjoy. The Fantastic Us is your guide to the Fantastic Four from the beginning of the Marvel Age of Comics. Each week, Steve Lacey and Andy Leyland cover each issue, spin-off, guest appearance and cameo of Marvel's first family. And in 2019, we begin our journey through the neon decade, the 1980s. Join us as we cover... 
All-time classic runs from John Byrne and Walt Simonson. She-Hulk and Sharon Ventura join the Fantastic Four. The Invisible Girl No More, here comes The Invisible Woman. Spin-off series including Marvel 2-in-1 and The Thing. Marvel's Secret Wars, The Trial of Reed Richards and more. Find us at thefantasticast.com on iTunes and all other podcast services. The Fantasticast. Insert catchy tagline here. Wait, what? The Warlord, number 42, February 1981. War, written and illustrated by Mike Grell. Colors, Adrian Roy. Letters, John Costanza. Editor, Jack C. Harris. The Warlord and Shakira are traveling to Shambhala, where Travis Morgan hopes to make amends with Tara. Along the way, they see evidence of the Theron army advancing through towns and jungles, leaving Morgan anxious about what they might find. And his suspicions are confirmed when they come inside of the city and find an army using a giant battering ram on the gates of Shambhala. Shakira chooses to stay behind because this is Morgan's fight, but she gives him an Atlantean laser rifle that she's been carrying. The warlord takes his sword Hellfire from its sheath and mounts his horse and races forward, surprising the Theron army. (coughs) The horse cuts a path through the invading army as soldiers either scatter and run or fall to the warlord's sword as the crystal in the sword's hilt glows brighter in response to the fighting. With the Theron army in a moment of disarray, the gates open to let Morgan enter the city. Inside, the Council of Elders come to meet the Warlord to thank him for his help, but he only wants to see Tara, their queen. However, the Council informs him they're still waiting for her to return from her trip to Kambuka. In shock, Morgan realizes that means Tara must have been captured by the Therans on her return trip. The exciting cover shows the Warlord in battle, wielding the sword Hellfire in one hand and the Atlantean laser pistol in the other. Inside, the double-page title page shows the Theron army advancing with the giant battering ram, while the shadowed silhouette of the Warlord watches from the treetops in the distance. I really like the design of the battering ram, which looks like a giant ram's head. It's very nicely detailed. I also love the scene of Morgan climbing up into the trees with Shakira in her cat form riding along on his shoulder. It's also interesting to see Shakira choose not to follow Morgan into the city. The decision fits her character well. Just like a cat, she goes where she pleases, when she pleases. During the battle, as Morgan makes his way toward the city, Mike Grell does a great job of conveying the struggle Morgan is having with the sword Hellfire, which hungers for blood and grows stronger when it's being used. The last page is a favorite as we see the shock on Morgan's face as he realizes what must have happened to Tara. And then the final panel shows Tara in chains in the Theron army camp outside the city. The issue also gives us a small hint at what is coming in the issues ahead as Morgan has a brief vision of his daughter Jennifer floating in a life raft after the destruction of her boat, the Lady J. The Warlord, number 43, March 1981, Berserk, written and illustrated by Mike Grell, inks Bob Smith, colors Adrian Roy, letters Todd Klein, editor Jack C. Harris. This issue picks up in the Theron army camp. Tara has remained quiet after realizing her captors think she is a servant and don't know they're holding the Queen of Shambhala. 
She saw the warlord race through the army on his horse to get inside the city, and she knows she will have an opportunity to escape if she is patient. Inside the city, Morgan has also realized the Therans must not know they are holding the queen, or they would have shown her at the city wall and demanded the gates be opened. Morgan tells the Council of Elders he wants 500 men, but they must be volunteers who are willing to put their own lives on the line to save their queen. Morgan leads the volunteers to the flooded subterranean caverns that honeycomb the foundation of the city. He tells the soldiers that they must proceed without armor because it will weigh them down as they swim through the caverns. As the soldiers proceed through the caverns, Morgan rides out to face the Theron army. He offers a battle of single combat to determine the fate of the city. If he wins, the army must leave, but if he loses, then the city is theirs without further fighting. The Theron general chooses his champion, a giant with four arms who can wield two swords, a mace, and a shield all at the same time. Morgan appears to be at a significant disadvantage and seems to just barely be able to avoid the giant's repeated blows. However, in reality, Morgan is just biding his time and he is waiting until he sees a single flaming arrow arc through the sky. That is the signal that the 500 soldiers from Shambhala have emerged from the caverns behind the Theron army and are ready for battle. The warlord then unleashes the power of his sword Hellfire and quickly dispatches his opponent. As one group of soldiers appear from the jungle behind the Therans, the gates of Shambhala swing open as other soldiers swarm out of the city. The battle is intense, but the army of Shambhala is triumphant. However, as the head of the Theron army attempts to surrender, Morgan feels the call of the sword Hellfire and raises it to kill the soldier. Tara stops him, and as his temper calms, he realizes that he must be rid of the sword before it takes over. He goes to the edge of the lake and throws the sword as far as he can, and is surprised to see a hand rise up out of the water and catch the sword. Back in the city, Morgan and Tara retire to their room, but a guard arrives carrying a plank of painted wood. Morgan sees the name, Lady J, painted on the wood and knows it's from his daughter's Jennifer's ship. Even though he wants to stay with Tara, he knows he must now leave for the Land of Shadow, where the wood was found to search for his daughter. This is a really terrific issue and gets off to a great start with a dramatic cover by Mike Grell showing the warlord in battle. The double-page title page shows a profile view of Tara as she remembers Morgan battling the Theron guards as he rides toward Shambhala. The images of the subterranean caverns are wonderfully drawn, and I could have easily enjoyed seeing more pages in these tunnels. Morgan's plan is a great one and is perfectly executed, and it's great to see how pleased Tara is to see him again after their fiery exchange a few issues earlier. I also really like the homage to the Lady in the Lake when Morgan throws away his sword. Plus, the arches on those panels add to the Arthurian atmosphere. However, their happiness is short-lived as Morgan knows he must immediately leave on a quest to find his daughter. Alexander Hamilton, Aaron Burr. If you're a history lover or a musical lover, you probably know about both Hamilton and Burr's rise to power in the early stages of American history and their infamous duel. But what if you didn't know the full story? What if one of them was a werewolf? 
White Rocket Entertainment proudly presents a 48-page full-color comic book, Hamilton vs. Burr, A Werewolf Tale. Written by Jared Albrecht, the yard sale artist, art by Nate Niles, colors by Ace Wheelie and Ken Solomon, letters by Percival Constantine, and edited by Johanna Albrecht. Hamilton vs. Burr, A Werewolf Tale, available digitally on Kindle and Comics Central, C-O-M-I-X Central. Prefer a print copy? Hamilton vs. Burr, A Werewolf Tale, along with my other published works, are available at the yard sale artist.bigcartel.com that's the yard sale artist.bigcartel.com or you can buy it directly from me creator Jared Albrecht the yard sale artist at any of my comic con appearances Hamilton versus Burr a werewolf tale Get your copy today. You won't regret it. Don't take my word for it. Here's what Ming Chen from AMC's TV series Comic Book Men had to say about it. I really enjoyed it. A lot of great werewolf scenes in here. A lot of great... Uh, this is how I wish history would be told to kids. <laughs> <laughs> Books like a- a Hamilton vs. Burr, A Werewolf Tale. That's Hamilton vs. Burr, A Werewolf Tale. John Sable Freelance, number 31. December 1985, The Gauntlet, Part 1. Written and illustrated by Mike Grell. Letters, Ken Brusnack. Colors, Janice Cohen. Editor, Mike Gold. John Sable wakes up with tears in his eyes, and Mike Blackman asks him what's wrong. It's Elisa's birthday, and he always takes violets to put on her grave, but he just woke up and realized he forgot this year. Later, he's taking a walk to clear his head when a classic Mercedes pulls up in front of him. A beautiful blonde woman wearing dark sunglasses asks him to come with her and tells him Captain Hook wants to see him. (laughs) On board a sailboat docked in the harbor, John meets Captain Hook, who turns out to be his old friend Jerry Fetter. The two serve together in Vietnam and owe each other their lives. Jerry lost his left hand and, in turn, picked up a nickname. Jerry wants John's help in getting into Nicaragua. He has a team lined up already, and they're working as freelance contractors for the CIA. They need to take photos of suspected Russian fighter planes that are being shipped in large crates. The U.S. government can't justify any action without the photographic evidence. Jerry assures Sable there will be no fighting. They aren't even taking guns. The team will go in as tourists and get the photos, but they need John because he's been to Nicaragua before. (laughs) That night, John meets the rest of the team. Aileen Saxon was the blonde woman who picked him up. She's a trained Navy SEAL and will be their photographer. Ed Gardner served with the Rangers in Korea and is a demolitions expert. Patrick O'Reilly is a pilot and served with the Airborne in Vietnam. Will Jordan is a former Texas Ranger and a champion shooter. And Tawny Hand is their half-Cherokee survival expert who's skilled with a bow and arrow. As they relax on their last evening before departing, they jokingly choose various names for the team before finally settling on the gauntlet. But John's not sure how he feels about the name, because when the fighting starts, the gauntlet usually gets thrown to the ground and stepped on. The cover features John Sable in a uniform holding a rifle, and in the background is the symbol of the hammer and sickle from the Soviet flag. Inside, the double-page title page features a stunning montage of scenes of John Sable's past with Elise and his present with Mike. The dark blacks and blues used on the initial pages convey the sadness John feels when he realizes he forgot Elise's birthday. I especially like the introduction of the various members of the team. Each gets their own splash page, with several images showing their areas of expertise, 
These are some awesome pages. And I think my personal favorite panel in the book is a simple one of John and Jerry in the woods waiting for the team to arrive. The image of the full moon behind the trees is gorgeous. This is a very nice setup to the story and a nice introduction to a very interesting team. John Sable Freelance, number 32, January 1986, The Gauntlet, part 2, written and illustrated by Mike Grell, letters Ken Bruznak, colors Janice Cohen, editor Mike Gold. The issue picks up with our crew in Nicaragua. John Sable and Aileen Saxon are posing as a couple on vacation, which gives them the opportunity to inconspicuously take photos of each other in strategic locations near the docks, so they can get images of the loading and unloading of the crates in the background. At midnight, the whole team plans to make their way into the camp to finally determine whether or not the Russian fighter planes are inside the crates that have been unloaded. The team will then report their findings to a U.S. aircraft carrier that is waiting offshore to retrieve them. The early part of the plan goes as expected. The team makes their way through the woods and takes care of various guards. Tawny Hand fires an arrow to let Sable, Saxon, and Fetter know that everything is clear, and then they swim under the docks and climb up to where the crates are stored. However, when they look inside the crates, they don't find the fighter jets they expected, but instead find medium-range missiles on mobile launchers with nuclear warheads. The team has to come up with a quick, improvised plan because they have to destroy the missiles before they become operational. Demolitions expert Ed Gardner mixes fertilizer in a tanker truck filled with gasoline, while Texas Ranger Will Jordan fashions a triggering device on the front of the truck. Meanwhile, Tawny Hand takes care of the guards near the airfield so that pilot Patrick O'Reilly can ready a chopper for their escape. Garner sets the truck on a path toward the crate as the group makes their escape in the helicopter, but when the truck hits a rock, the stick holding down the gas pedal comes loose and the tanker rolls to a stop just before reaching the closest crate. However, the team doesn't realize what has happened until they are flying away and see the stalled truck and realize their plan has failed. Meanwhile, at the base, soldiers have realized someone is escaping with a helicopter. The soldiers at the base activate one of the mobile launchers to shoot down the chopper, but just as the launcher raises into position, it hits the detonator on the front of the stalled truck, and the tanker filled with the gasoline and fertilizer explodes, destroying all of the rocket launchers. With a sense of relief, the team continues on their way to the rendezvous with the aircraft carrier after a successful mission. The cover features the team in uniforms running in front of an image that looks like the American flag, except that the red stripes are drawn to look like missiles. It's a striking image. I particularly like the pages with John Sable and Aileen Saxon pretending to be on vacation taking photos while making sure they get images of the docks in the background. The scenes of the team making their way through the woods are done very nicely with lots of shadows and light, and each team member is shown making a contribution. I also really like the pages where the team makes their way through the water to come up under the docks. The images do a great job of creating suspense. The impromptu plan is well described and visually clear, making it easy to understand what the team is doing. You really feel the same shock and disappointment as the team when the truck stalls before hitting the target, and the final surprise destruction and the image of the helicopter escaping with the explosion in the background is stunning. 
Justice League International Bwahaha Podcast, a new monthly show chronicling the adventures of the JLI era by Keith Giffen and J.M. DeMatteis. We'll be going issue by issue in release order, tackling the core Justice League title, Justice League Europe, and the quarterly book. Along the way, we'll take time out for special episodes covering various spin-offs, cartoon appearances, the infamous TV pilot, and much more. So join me in an ever-changing roster of guest hosts as we celebrate your favorite JLI members, such as... Martian Manhunter. Batman. Dr. Fate. Black Canary. Fire. Ice. Maxwell Lord. Oberon. Captain Marvel. Rocket Red. Captain Adam. Mr. Miracle. Guy Gardner. Booster Gold. Blue Beetle. Nort. And many, many more. Justice League International, Blahaha Podcast, part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Want to make something of it? Green Arrow, number 35, August 1990. The Black Arrow Saga, part one. Writer, Mike Grell. Pencils, Mark Jones. Inks, Bill Ray. Letters, John Costanza. Colors, Julia Laquament. Associate editor, Katie Main. Editor, Mike Gold. Our story picks up with the FBI breaking down the door to Oliver's and Dinah's home. Oliver is taken in for questioning by agents of the FBI, CIA, and DEA, who claim that Eddie Fires was not working for them in Panama, where Oliver joined him in what he thought was a DEA operation to dismantle a drug smuggling ring. They have photos of Oliver near the U.S. naval ship that was blown up in the Panama Canal two days earlier. They tell him they believe he was the one who planted the explosives that destroyed the ship and Oliver remembers the tracking device that Eddie Fires gave him to attach to the metal plates that were then attached to the ship. Oliver now suspects the so-called tracking device might have been a detonator instead. Oliver knows his only hope is to track down Eddie Fires, but he's charged with terrorism and denied bail. Knowing his reputation, the FBI decides to transfer Oliver to a secure military lockup at Fort Lewis. Eddie Fires is hiding in a wooded area as the transport car drives by late at night. Eddie fires a rifle at the car's tires, causing it to swerve and crash. Using his agility and speed, Oliver takes advantage of the situation and the Green Arrow escapes into the night. Meanwhile, Dinah knows Oliver needs help to clear his name. She searches through Oliver's desk and finds the phone number she's been looking for and dials the number. The phone rings, and on the other end of the line, Shadow answers. The four issues of this story have matching covers that feature a large arrowhead design with an image inside the arrow. This first issue has an image by Ed Hannigan and Dick Giordano of Shadow with a bow and arrow. She's in the woods, overlooking Sherwood Florist. In the story... It appears that Oliver has once again been taken advantage of by Eddie Fires, and he's in serious trouble. It's an exciting start to a story arc featuring fan-favorite Shadow, and the issue ends with Oliver on the run. The interior art by Mark Jones and Bill Ray features some nice scenes, including the bottom of page 4, which features a trio of images of Dinah feeling alone and lost after Oliver is taken away. I also like the double-page center pages that feature a newspaper that includes the credits, along with a scene of Oliver in his cell, remembering several key recent scenes. These memories continue on pages 16 to 17, and I like the dark backgrounds and shadows used to convey the sadness of recent events.
Green Arrow number 36, September 1990. The Black Arrow Saga, part two. Writer, Mike Grell. Pencils, Mark Jones. Inks, Bill Ray. Letters, John Costanza. Colors, Julia Lackwoman. Associate editor, Katie Main. Editor, Mike Gold. Our story starts with Marion, a young blonde woman who lives on the streets in Seattle. We see her still small things, but only from those who can afford it or those who deserve it because of how they treat others. However, she always smiles and is always polite, and most of the people she interacts with are friendly and helpful to her, including a kind grocer who sells outdated fruit and vegetables to her at a discount, and Tommy, who works at a local Italian restaurant and brings leftovers to her in the alley behind the restaurant. Not everyone is friendly, though, and Manzetti and his gang try to give her a hard time, but she tells them off and makes a quick escape. Marion strolls past the many shops at night after the stores have closed and makes a regular stop to stare longingly at a beautiful gown in a store window. She then makes her way down into the Seattle underground, where she has a secret room of her own, but she's surprised this night to find a man hiding in her room. We all know it's Oliver Queen, but he introduces himself as Robert Huntington. However, she loves stories of knights in shining armor and damsels in distress, and she knows the legend of Robin Hood and the connection to Robert Huntington, so she isn't fooled. She's afraid at first, but he reassures her he isn't there to hurt her and didn't realize anyone was staying there. Oliver starts to leave, but just then Manzetti and his gang break through the door. They followed her after their earlier encounter. Oliver takes care of them, and Marianne tells him that he can spend the night in her place. The next morning, she finds Oliver reading the book she's been writing, and she's momentarily upset. But he tells her it's good, much better, he says, than most of the books he sees that she's collected. He asks her to do him a favor, and later we see her sneak into Sherwood Florist and retrieve his bow and arrow and a duffel bag he has hidden. When she returns, he gives her some money from the duffel bag. He tells her to get an apartment and to use it for school tuition, and he tells her to go to Sherwood Florist to see about getting a job because she'll have to work if she really wants to escape her current life. Meanwhile, at home, Dinah is woken by a strange noise. She goes outside to find Shadow practicing in the backyard with her bow and arrow. The two have never met in person, but know enough about each other that few words are needed. And given recent developments, Dinah is quite heartbroken when she sees Shadow's young son. This issue's cover by Ed Hannigan and Dick Giordano features a beautiful image of Marion staring longingly at the gown in the shop window. The initial few pages provide a nice visual introduction for Marion and do a great job of showing us around parts of Seattle. There are several nice slice-of-life panels that provide background for the story, and I especially enjoyed seeing the market down at the waterfront. I really love so many things about this issue, and especially the way the issue is written. It's as if it's a fairy tale being told to the reader similar to The Princess Bride, which is my favorite movie. While spelled differently than normal, I'm certain Marion is named after Marion from the Robin Hood legend. Throughout the issue, the narration refers to her as a princess, and Tommy as a prince, while Oliver is a troll, which I found funny. I love that Marion hides out in the Seattle underground, and as she makes her way there, you see old movie posters in the background, including The Princess Bride and Labyrinth, which is another favorite of mine. Those movie posters are wonderful little Easter eggs in this perfect little fairy tale story. There is a great use of shadow and light in the underground setting as well that really adds to the atmosphere. 
Thank you, Mike and team, for such a wonderful issue. Green Arrow, number 37, September 1990. The Black Arrow Saga, Part 3. Quarry. Writer, Mike Grell. Pencils, Rick Hoberg. Inks, Bill Ray. Letters, Steve Haney. Colors, Julia Laquamet. Associate Editor, Katie Main. Editor, Mike Gold. Eddie Fires is walking along a Seattle street at night when an arrow flies just past his head, striking the wall behind him. Eddie turns and begins firing his gun at a shadowed figure on the roof of a building across the street, but he has to turn and run into the night when he sees a police car's lights in the distance. Back at Sherwood Florist, there is an intense conversation going on between Dinah and Shadow. Dinah is hurt because she knows that Shadow's son is Oliver's, while she can never give him a child herself. Shadow tries to explain that Oliver doesn't know the child is his. He was delirious from fever at the time and thinks he was dreaming of being with Dinah. The two can't come to terms with each other, but they know they need to work together to help Oliver. Dinah recounts the events that happened in Panama and Oliver's subsequent arrest and escape. Dinah is afraid that Oliver will kill Eddie Fires and then there won't be anyone to clear his name. She knows she could find Oliver herself, but Dinah's being watched by the authorities and that's why she needs Shadow's help. Meanwhile, Oliver is leaving an electronics store downtown when he sees a newspaper headline about his arrest and escape. He sees an older couple being accosted by a gang, but he's shaved off his goatee to try to look more inconspicuous and knows he can't do anything at the moment without giving away his identity. But he follows the gang until they're in a secluded alley and then he confronts them and makes quick work of them. Meanwhile, Dinah drives out in the Sherwood Florist delivery van, and the feds begin to follow her. They know she's unlikely to be making a delivery that late at night, and suspect she's going to meet Oliver. Just as Dinah makes a sharp turn, Shadow leaps from the back of the van and rolls into an alley out of sight just before the trailing car makes the turn. She's now free to begin tracking Oliver as Dinah leads the feds away. Meanwhile, Oliver is returning to his hideout in the underground, but as he walks into the room, he finds Eddie Fires waiting with a gun pointed at him. The cover by Ed Hannigan and Dick Giordano features an image of Oliver confronting a gang. It's similar to the sequence in the book, but doesn't quite fit the story since Oliver still has his goatee on the cover to make it easy to see it's the Green Arrow. The conversation between Dinah and Shadow is difficult, but necessary for the story to advance, and it's handled well and it's good to see the two of them set aside their differences to work together to help Oliver. The scenes of Oliver walking through the city at night are done very well. The art conveys how much it bothers him to see his picture on the cover of every newspaper and to see how he reacts to the headlines. It's also a real struggle for him to ignore the elderly couple being accosted, and it's gratifying when he confronts the gang later in the story. I really like the art in a particular panel when Eddie Fires is walking past an apartment building at night, and we see a list of the names of the building's residents on a call box, including Grell and Gold. A very nice Easter egg for fans. Green Arrow number 38, October 1990, The Black Arrow Saga, Part 4, Hunters and Killers. Writer Mike Grell, pencils Rick Hoberg, inks Bill Ray, letters Steve Haney, colors Julia Laquamet, associate editor Katie Main. Editor, Mike Gold. 
The story starts with the drug lord Mandel watching a news story about Oliver Queen when he receives a call. The voice on the other end of the phone tells him where he can find a specific man with a bow and arrow. Meanwhile, at Oliver's hideout, Eddie Fires is accusing him of shooting an arrow at him earlier in the evening. Oliver takes the arrow from Eddie and immediately knows it isn't one of his. He uses a speed knock that lets him load an arrow quickly without having to take his eyes off the target. The arrow shot at Eddie has a target knock. It's better for some archers, but Oliver would never use it because it's slower. Besides, he tells Eddie, if he fired the arrow, Eddie wouldn't still be alive. Shadow has been listening from the shadows and steps into view. She tells Oliver about Dinah's concerns, and Eddie tells Oliver he's sure they've both been set up. Eddie says he wasn't working for the DEA in Panama, but he was working for the CIA. It's now clear to him that both of them were being used, and now he and Oliver are being set up to kill each other to prevent the truth from coming out. The trio leave to confront Eddie's boss. The head agents from the FBI, CIA, and DEA are meeting that night to discuss developments. But just as they begin to talk, Oliver crashes through the window of the penthouse apartment and draws an arrow on them. As they sit on a couch with their hands behind their heads, Oliver keeps his back to the broken window and begins to tell them the story of what really happened in Panama. The real story is that the U.S. government was looking for a way to increase their military presence in the area because of concerns over the control of the Panama Canal. It was decided that an explosion in a U.S. military ship would be just the excuse they needed to increase troop levels. They knew they could use someone like Oliver, a champion of lost causes who could be manipulated into going after what he thought was a drug smuggling operation. And now that the mission has achieved the intended goals, the CIA needs to silence both Oliver and Eddie. The head of the DEA is genuinely upset at hearing the story and realizing his agency was being used as well. He assures Oliver he knew nothing about it. Just then, a shot is fired from a neighboring building, striking Oliver in the back, and he falls to the ground. Thinking Oliver has been killed as he arranged, the CIA agent is noticeably relieved and says the plan can now proceed. This clear admission of what had been done further angers the DEA agent, but then Oliver slowly gets up from the floor. He was wearing a bulletproof vest loaned to him by Eddie Fires, and he now has all that he needs recorded on tape which he delivers to the local television news team to clear both him and Eddie. Later at the docks, Eddie has a gift for Oliver. It's Mandel, the drug lord that Oliver was tracking. Oliver draws an arrow, but he isn't a killer, and he puts down the arrow so Mandel can be turned over for trial. Eddie looks at him and says, You're not a cold-blooded killer, but I am. And he shoots Mandel, bringing the story to an end. The cover by Ed Hannigan and Dick Giordano shows a dead man in an alley. There's an arrow in his back and the shadow of a hooded figure in the background. The sequence of Oliver and Eddie at the beginning is handled nicely, and Shadow looks powerful when she appears on the title page. The use of shadows and light in the underground scenes is well done and creates a great setting for the action and helps convey the danger of the situation. The story does a nice job of pulling together the various elements of the story from this four-parter, as well as the remaining threads left over from the previous story. The final images on the last page are handled well and show the bittersweet nature of the impact of the story. Shadow hugs her son with a huge smile on her face, while Oliver and Dinah stare at each other, feeling weighed down by all of the recent challenges in their lives. And we are all left hoping for some happiness to come back into their lives.
Next up is listener feedback when we share emails and other messages we've received since last time. We appreciate every comment and want to sincerely thank everyone who wrote in or got in touch through social media. We want to start out by congratulating Simon Barre Brisbois for completing his wonderful Warlord comic series of reviews on Twitter. We followed all of his Warlord posts as he provided concise summaries and commentaries on every issue, complete with photos of covers and sample pages and panels. These were always a treat to see, and we enjoyed having fun exchanges with Simon about the comics. And we're excited to see that Simon is now reviewing another of our favorites, which is Hayao Miyazaki's manga of Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind. Thanks for all of those awesome posts, Simon. After our last episode posted, the Bronze Age of DC Comics let us know they were glad to hear from us again. Thank you. Our special guest, Sean Ross, wrote to thank us for letting him join us to talk about an emotional arc in Mike Grell's seminal Green Arrow book. He also promoted us on social media with a wink, saying, I'm so excited that Warlord Worlds is back. You need to listen, even if the guest brings down the general quality of the show. And, of course, Sean was being overly humble there because his guest spots have all been amazing. Professor Allen of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network gave Sean Ross and us a shout-out on Twitter. Ruth, Darren, and Sean, two of the nicest, best-looking podcasters in the business. Ha <laughs> We were too afraid to ask who he meant. Ha <laughs> huh, sure. We know he meant me. And right back at you, Allen. Austin Appleby wrote, I enjoyed listening to Sean Ross of Pulp to Pixel give his review on Green Arrow. I, too, greatly enjoyed the storyline as well as his additional thoughts on the importance of that arc. Great stuff. Austin also let us know he hopes we'll be covering Maggie the Cat and John Sable Freelance Rules of the Hunt in the future. Thanks, Austin. We definitely will be covering those in the near future. We just don't want to cover them too soon because we want to encourage fans to pick them up and support Mike's great Kickstarters. And we also want to give a shout-out to Austin, who until recently was based at Fort Lewis, which is mentioned in the Green Arrow issues we covered in this episode. Fun. Tim Price wrote in and said, Great episode, Grelkins. The issues sound excellent, and I especially like that sable cover with the Falcon's shadow. I'd stopped Green Arrow by this point, but now I'm hankering to read those issues. Thank you, gang. John Baker wrote, As always, enjoyable and informative. Why do evildoers always have tentacled monsters that feed on humans? Good one, John. John also said he loved the Maltese Falcon references, and he closed with a quote from the film, The cheaper the crook, the gaudier the patter. Joshua Ox let us know he just discovered and subscribed to our show. Thanks so much for following us, Joshua, and we hope you enjoy the show. Luke Giaconetti wrote to say it was great timing for the very welcome return of Warlord Worlds. Thanks, Luke. Kenneth Crosby wrote to let us know how much he loves the Warlord. That's terrific, Kenneth. Crawdad commented, It's a tragedy that Warlord has never been collected in omnibus or deluxe trades. We agree completely and hope that might be remedied sometime in the near future. We want to thank our friends John, Cullen, and Jerry at the Worst Comics Podcast Ever, who mentioned us on their show, saying they hoped we had picked up Young Justice 13 with Mike Grell drawing Warlord. They were right to know we would be thrilled to see that. Martin Gray of the blog Too Dangerous for a Girl is so thoughtful and made sure to let us know that issue 120 of Back Issue Magazine features a piece on Mike Grell's Star Slayer. Excellent. Thanks, Martin. In closing, we were very sad to hear of the passing of Denny O'Neill. We are very sorry for the loss and want to share our condolences with his family and friends. We truly admired his work and knew that Mike Grell held him in high regards. 
Mike Grell wrote a wonderful tribute on his website at MikeGrell.com, and we want to share a few excerpts from that post. Mike said, I'm still in shock from the news that Denny O'Neill has passed away. We were friends for almost 50 years, and his death is a gut punch that still has me reeling. Mike continued, He gave me my whole career, starting when I first read Green Lantern, Green Arrow when I was in Saigon in 1970. His writing woke me up to what comics could really be and started me on this path. I learned more about good writing by drawing the stories Denny wrote than all the English lit classes put together. Everything I've done can be traced back to Denny's influence. I was honored to have the opportunity to work with him one last time for the Green Lantern 70th anniversary book on a short story featuring Green Arrow that he wrote especially for me. Mike concluded with, Right now, all I can think of is how fortunate I was to have had him for a mentor, collaborator, and friend. He was my hero. That was such a beautiful tribute from Mike. So very sincere and so very emotional. Thank you for sharing that with your fans, Mike. Next, we want to extend our thanks to everyone who supported us on social media. These are people who promoted our last episode and shared comments. If we miss a name, let us know and we'll include it next time. And please do forgive us if we mispronounce your name. If that happens, let us know and we'll be happy to correct it on the next show. Alan Wright from BoldOutlaw.com Andrew Chinich Ange of the Supergirl Comic Box Commentary Blog Aaron Rice Austin Appleby Bill Beer of the Too Old Too New Podcast Billy of the Magazines and Monsters blog, Bob Bailey, Brian Mulvey, Brian Payne, Bruce Martino, Castle Scott, Chris of the Professor Frenzy Show and Memory Minute Mondays, Chronicles Podcast, Clinton Robson of the Coffee and Comics blog and podcast, Comics in the Golden Age, Daniel Garand, Dave's Comic Heroes blog, Derek William Crabb of the Fanholes podcast and History of Comics on Film, Dr. G, Man of Nerdology of the Pulp to Pixel podcast, Ed and Terry Moore of Till Productions, Everett Starr, Fabio Bacco, Gary Woolard, Gene Hendricks from The Hammer Strikes and Anime Freaks, George Hall, Jerry Green of The Professor Frenzy Show and Bedtime Stories, Gilbert Garcia Jr., Green Lantern HG, Gus Sabayus of the Mike Grell Facebook page, Irredeemable Shag, a.k.a. Firestorm fan of the Fire and Water Podcast Network, James Warrington, Jared Albrick, the yard sale artist, Jeff and Rick present Unpacking the Power of Power Pack. Jeff Beckman, Jeff Messer of the Mike Grell page and Issues With. Jeffrey Willis of the Hollow World blog and Wave Your Geek Flag. Jerry McMullen from the Worst Comic Podcast Ever. Jimmy Simpson, Joe Crawford of the blog for the Non-Discerning Reader. John Baker, who does sci-fi TV reviews at 3 If By Space. John Holloway, also of the Worst Comic Podcast Ever. Justice Trek. Karen Williams of the Sweet Between the Pages blog. Kenneth Crosby, Kirk Spencer, Leslie Trigg, Luke Ed, Luke Giaconetti of the Earth Destruction Directive, Martin Gray of the blog Too Dangerous for a Girl, Martin Lesborell, Mike Peacock of Justice's First Dawn, a classic JLA podcast, Neil Burke, Nethead, Pat Sampson, a.k.a. Christados, Patrick Oney, Paul Hicks of Waiting for Doom and the DCOCD podcast, Professor Allen of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network, Richard Field, Robert Ross, Robert Zalo, The Rolled Spine Podcast, Russell Burbage of The Legion of Superbloggers, Sammy Maynard, Sean Ross of Pulp to Pixel and Secret Wars, Talk Nerdy to Me, Ted Green, Todd Hansen, Vic Sage of The Retroist and Radio Memories Podcast, and Zeb Oswalt.
Before we go, we want to provide our contact information. If you want to contact us directly or have something you would like to have read on the show, please send an email to warlordworlds at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram using the name Warlord Worlds. And you can listen to our show through Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Google Podcasts, and all of our Mike Grell-themed episodes are always available at warlordworlds.com. You can also find the show on YouTube as part of the Rad Adventures Network. That's Rad, R-A-D, which is short for Ruth and Darren. On the Rad Adventures YouTube channel and at radadventuresnetwork.com, you'll find all of the episodes of all of our podcasts, including Warlord Worlds, as well as Trekker Talk about 23rd century bounty hunter Mercy St. Clair by Ron Randall, and Xenozoic Xenophiles about the Cadillacs and Dinosaurs series Xenozoic Tales by Mark Schultz. If you like the show, please consider leaving a review. Every review helps the podcast be more likely to show up in search results. And on YouTube, we hope you'll subscribe to the channel and give us some likes on the videos. Thanks so much for listening, and we hope you'll come back next time for another new episode of Warlord Worlds. Warlord Worlds is a proud member of the Comics Podcast Network. For more information, visit comicspodcast.com. We are not affiliated with DC Comics or Mike Grell. The views expressed on the show are solely ours. Music is taken from the album Royalty-Free Instrumental Music for Movies and Websites. We make no money from this podcast and no copyright infringement is intended. 